Our second lesson for this Lord's Day is found in Paul's letter to the church in Rome, chapter 15, and reading verses uh, 1 through 13. And I invite you again to turn in your scriptures and follow along as I read. We who are strong ought to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Each of us should please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For even Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the insults of those who insult you have fallen on me. For everything that was written in the past was written to teach us so that through endurance and the encouragement of the Scriptures we might have hope. May the God who gives endurance and encouragement give you a spirit of unity among yourselves as you follow Christ Jesus, so that with one heart and mouth you may glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Accept one another then, just as Christ accepted you, in order to bring praise to God. For I tell you that Christ has become a servant of the Jews on behalf of God's truth to confirm the promises made to the patriarchs, so that the Gentiles may glorify God for his mercy as it is written. Therefore I will praise you among the Gentiles. I will sing hymns to your name. Again it says, Rejoice, O Gentiles, with his people. And again, praise the Lord, all you Gentiles, and sing praises to Him, all you peoples. And again, Isaiah says, the root of Jesse will spring up, one who will arise to rule over the nations. The Gentiles will hope in Him. May the God of hope fill you with all joy and peace as you trust in Him, so that you may overflow with hope by the power of the Holy Spirit. And herein ends the reading of God's word to us this day. May all praise and honor and glory be to him and to him alone. Amen. Well, we return to uh, today to our walk through Paul's letter to the church in Rome after a brief break to focus on Palm Sunday and Holy Week and to pay due attention to the resurrection and the aftermath of that great day. So to refocus our attention on these closing chapters of Paul's letter, let's have just a brief reminder of the specifics that the Apostle has been dealing with when last we met. When we began this journey through Paul's letter, we understood that of all the letters that Paul wrote, this letter to Rome was the most comprehensive treatise on the gospel that he proclaimed. And that if one properly understands the letter to the Romans, then one has a truly solid grasp on the message of good news that is found throughout the entirety of Scripture. The message of the Bible is not meant to be a philosophy of life. It's not meant to be a literary guide that occasionally will point you in a right direction to aid us as we flounder around hoping to decide rightly. 
the gospel message of Christ is a transforming word. It takes hold of us, and by it we come to faith in the risen Christ. It takes hold of us, and by it we discover that God's own Spirit has taken up residence in the true disciples of Christ and begins a sanctifying work in us that slays the old man and raises up a new man in Jesus Christ. And has Paul has been addressing the brothers and sisters in Rome at the end of this letter, we have seen that this sanctifying work is a process that takes some time. For we have some believers in Rome who have come to experience the liberty that is ours in Christ, and we have some others who are still unaware that they have been set free from the ceremonial law or the older social conventions that once dictated their behavior. And these differences of opinion have created tension and friction within the fellowship to the extent that Paul addresses these differences in his letter, cognizant that if they're left to fester, they will metastasize into something far more sinister and spiritually deadly. Paul knows that the human heart has the capacity to blow things all out of proportion and that we can begin to major in the minors. We can begin to de-emphasize those things that are essential and overemphasize those things that are not to the extent that we will destroy that which is holy. So, Paul has been focusing our attention on the critical importance of prioritizing the various issues which inevitably arise within any church. These are issues that we would specifically associate with the embodiment of the Christian life. In other words, these are issues that we personally understand as the natural outgrowth of a sanctified Christian life. In the context of the Roman church, one of these issues centered on the consumption, or not, of meat that had once been forbidden under the ceremonial law, as well as meat that had been offered to foreign idols. Some believers there understood that Christ's atoning work rendered the ceremonial law moot, and since foreign gods were no gods at all, then one could eat any meat without any sense of guilt or shame. But other believers were convinced that while all of that might be true, it was better to be safe than sorry, so they continued to avoid those particular meats. And then there were those who thought that the only safe course of action was to avoid all meat, all the time, and so they adopted a vegetarian lifestyle. Now, there wasn't anything inherently wrong with any of these approaches, so long as those who held to them did not suggest that there was something salvific in the approach that they adopted. A similar issue had to do with the observance of certain days on the calendar that had become sacred to some But to others, it was just another Tuesday. These differences were causing a certain amount of friction within the congregation. And Paul pastorally addresses these things back in chapter 14. 
Now, none of this was unique to Rome in the first century. In our own day, we know that there are fellowships of believers who practice, for example, a particular form of dress that sets them apart from the world. And for them, that's very important. But they would be hard-pressed to find a biblical foundation for such a dramatic conclusion. That being said, there's nothing in Scripture that prohibits that. Now, if some fellow were to show up to worship some Sunday in a seersucker suit with a red bow tie and white buck shoes, we would probably know pretty quickly if the dress code there had become more than a fashion statement and in their minds was actually religious law. And this is Paul's point. When we turn any issue into a requirement for salvation or for inclusion in the body of Christ, then we have begun to depart from the gospel. So, within a particular church, you may have some disciples who believe that consuming alcohol in any form is detrimental to their Christian witness, and so they abstain. There is nothing wrong with that. But as soon as they begin to suggest that it is wrong for any Christian to consume alcohol in moderation, then they've begun to pass judgment upon a brother, and Paul is quick to correct that. He says back in chapter 14, Who are you to pass judgment on the servant of another, meaning Christ? By the same token, within that same church, there may be a brother or sister who is at liberty where the issue of alcohol is concerned. Paul's advice to him is to not treat the abstaining brother or sister with disdain, nor should he attempt to make him stumble where this is concerned. Overall, Paul reminds the folks in Rome to treat one another with the kind of love and grace that they have received from Christ, because these issues are not of first importance in terms of the Christian faith. They're not a part of the gospel declaration. Our salvation is not dependent upon those things or any others being religiously observed. We are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. We are not saved by our accomplishment of any kind of work. Now, that does not mean that one could not make a case for dressing appropriately or curbing one's enthusiasm where alcohol is concerned or a host of other issues. There is spiritual wisdom to be found in a wide variety of issues that frequently cause division within a church. But notice that Paul himself was at liberty where many things were involved. Many of these things were involved, such that he often sought to adopt the mannerisms and customs of the peoples to whom he went to minister. He says in his first Corinthian letter in chapter 9, For though I am free from all, I have made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law I became as one under the law, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law I became as one outside the law, 
not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. And I do it all for the sake of the gospel, that I may share with them in its blessings. So do you see what Paul has done? He's personally at liberty with regards to a host of things. But his greatest aim is to win people to Jesus Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. His greatest aim is not to establish his personal opinions about issues all over Asia Minor. He did not set out to establish the church of Paul of Tarsus. He set out to build up the church of Jesus Christ. So when he found himself among a population that was largely Jewish, he was respectful of the customs of the Jews so as not to offend them and immediately lose their ear. He would seek to build bridges with them, calling attention perhaps to his own Jewish upbringing or his study under the famous rabbi Gamaliel so that they would be open to what he had to say. And when he was among the Gentiles, he was respectful of the customs of the Gentiles so as not to immediately offend them and lose their attention. Now, that does not mean that he made sacrifices to idols. doesn't mean that he would engage in behavior unbecoming a disciple of Jesus. It means that he did not approach them with a list of prohibitions if they wanted to become a disciple of Christ. Because he knew that until they were regenerate, they would not be able to obey those prohibitions anyway. He sought to find common ground and from there to make the case that Jesus of Nazareth was God's Savior to the world. When you go home later, reread his approach to the Athenians in Acts chapter 17. We're told there that as Paul made his way around Athens, his spirit was provoked within him because of all the idols. Everywhere he turned, there was another deity that some were worshiping. But when the opportunity to preach to these non-believers presented himself, he didn't start by saying, I just want you all to know that you're all headed for hell. He said to them, I see that you are very religious. He begins by acknowledging that within their spirits is a desire to be in relationship to God. He doesn't insult them. He does not point out their massive misunderstandings and the inconsistencies of their theology. He seeks to win their ear. But then he grabs their attention by acknowledging something that he noticed in his stroll through their town. He says, but I also saw the inscription on one of your idols. To the unknown God. Well, I'm here to tell you about him. Paul's motivation was to win people to Christ. He did that by declaring the gospel to let them know that we have no hope in and of ourselves, that we are without justification and we stand condemned before a holy God, that there's nothing that we can do to justify ourselves before God. But then he announces the good news, that God has sent His own Son 
And He has accomplished on our behalf what we could not do for ourselves. He has taken our unrighteousness upon Himself and has given to us, has imputed to us His righteousness. And by His death, He has turned away God's wrath from us by absorbing that wrath on Himself. And through His death, He has satisfied all the demands of the law and by His resurrection from the dead, we are assured that we have been justified before God's bar of judgment. This is the crux of the message that Paul declared. This is the only hope mankind has for salvation. Faith in Jesus Christ. There's no other name given among men by which they may be saved. And Paul was the chief ambassador to the Gentiles with this message sent by the King of Kings. And Paul did whatever he could by way of building bridges with other cultures to win some of those folks to Jesus Christ. He didn't get caught up in the issues unless they, they struck at the heart of the gospel. If the issue threatened the centrality of the good news, such as the issue of circumcision that was being propounded by the Judaizers among the Galatians, then he was quick to condemn it for what it was, a falling back into a works righteousness. But if the issue was circumcision in an effort to win someone to Christ, you may remember that on his second missionary journey, Paul had Timothy, the son of a Jewish woman and a Greek father, circumcised so as not to offend the Jews with whom they would be coming into contact wherever they went. So do you see the difference here? Our hope does not lie in our faithful obedience to a set of laws or customs or right opinions on a host of subjects. Our hope lies in the atoning work of Jesus Christ. Our hope rests in what He has done on our behalf. Paul's mission and motivation should also be reflected in us. We should be focused on winning others to Christ through the proclamation of the gospel. We should be focused on building up the church of Jesus Christ through our loving fellowship with other believers. And many of them will require our patient endurance. We know, for example, that a two-year-old child is incapable of feeding himself or herself chocolate pudding without making a mess. Is there anybody that would disagree with that? To expect a child of that age to carefully feed themselves chocolate pudding while wearing a brand new white outfit is to court disaster. We must feed the child after placing a bib around their neck. And even then there still may be accidents. It requires loving patience. And likewise, there are those who are still in their infancy where the gospel is concerned. They still do not fully comprehend the significance of what Christ has done. They believe that He's the Christ. They believe that God did something in Christ at Calvary. They believe that He rose from the dead and that there is salvation in no other. They believe that we are saved by God's grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone. But when you ask them to verbalize what all of that means, they have been so steeped in the culture in which they live or the religion of their youth that it does not really come out right. 
It carries a flavor of personal righteousness and is in need of serious re-education. But under no circumstances are they to be displaced or disregarded by those brothers and sisters who do fully comprehend the gospel. Paul calls the strong to bear them up. Paul tells the stronger brethren to recognize that they have an obligation to the weaker brethren, and that obligation originates at Calvary. The Christ suffering on our behalf is the reason we must bear the failings of the weak. Now, I realize that some translations, in fact, the NIV we read a moment ago does this, it inserts the word with in that first verse, that we must bear with the failings of the weak. But the Greek does not include that word there. It simply says that we are to bear the failings of the weak. So it isn't that we are to put up with or tolerate their presence among us, Paul is saying that we are to actually carry the burden of the weak. Paul's point is that Christ did that for us. Christ bore our weakness all the way to Calvary. He who knew no sin became sin for us. Therefore, since Christ offered such sacrificial service to us, we are to behave accordingly towards our sisters and brothers in the faith in regards to opinions and issues that are of secondary importance in the Christian life. As one commentator has put it in the context of the Roman church, the main lesson Paul is conveying is this. If Christ, the Holy One, was willing to take upon Himself so much suffering in the form of insults hurled at Him by His enemies, then should not we be willing to sacrifice just a little eating and drinking pleasure for the sake of of our fellow believers. This notion, Paul underscores throughout this entire passage. In verse 2, he calls the strong to be motivated by building up the weaker brother. In verse 3, he reminds us that Christ did not please himself. In verse 8, he calls attention to Christ becoming a servant to us. And what we find here is counsel to adopt a sacrificial attitude towards those in the body of Christ, and it is based entirely upon the one overarching message that is ours to proclaim. Christ alone is our hope. And to make this case, Paul quotes several passages of Scripture. Some of it comes from the Psalms. Some of it comes from the Law. Some of it comes from the Prophets. And this he does intentionally to demonstrate that the Scriptures are of one mind when it comes to Christ Jesus. They all point to Christ as the one whom God has promised from ages past. He is the one whom God promised to the children of Abraham, but he is also the one whom God promised would one day reach the Gentiles. Now here is the grand plan that God has had in mind since before the foundation of the world. That God would have a people unto Himself. They would not be of a particular ethnicity, but would be from every tribe and nation and tongue. But with one voice, they would give glory to God. Now why would they do that? 
because they were suddenly enamored with eating meat or not? Because they were suddenly enamored with keeping certain days on the calendar? No. They would offer glory to God because God had saved them from the consequences of their sin. They would glorify the Lord because of what He had done to save them. They would sing praises to His name because they had come to the realization of how grave was their spiritual condition and that without Christ, they would have been lost for all eternity. But because of God's grace, they had been justified and adopted into God's family. Friends, when in the course of our ministry we lose sight of the centrality of Christ, when we become preoccupied with things that are not essential to the gospel and we elevate those things to such a position that they become far more important than the glorious good news of Christ's atoning work, then we have begun to walk away from the faith altogether. Paul calls us, to bear one another up in such a way that we mutually grow up into Christ, that we reflect His heart and mind, that we feel a burden for those who are outside of Christ and develop a vision for them on Christ's behalf, and that we employ the means of gospel proclamation to reach them for God's glory. Let us not fail in this. Let us not fail to patiently endure. Let us not fail to exude the gospel in this place. And let us not fail to proclaim the truth of His Word always. Let me invite you to bow your heads with me that we might pray for a moment in closing today.